G'day, welcome to On The Road, the number one Australian trucking podcast made for Aussie truckies by Aussie truckies. We're an independent voice in Australian trucking and proudly brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Show number 161, and I'm down here in the cage uh, with my old mate Bob McMillan. Now, Bob's actually here in person. We're looking at each other face to face, which is a little bit scary because he's not got any better looking. How are you, Bob? I'm well, thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Thank you. <laughs> we are going to be doing a little bit of a different show today. Andy's not going to be doing the news with us today because I've been flat out at work and I haven't had a chance to get it done. So, given that Bob's here and uh, I'm going to go out for lunch and everything later on today, we're going to have a bit of a talk about the cares of the day and what's going on. So, do you want to know what we're not going to talk about first, Bob? Yeah, why not? I'm always interested in that, Mike. You're always interested in what we're not talking about? Yeah, it, it sort of reduces the worry level. <laughs> we are not going to talk about Caltex bringing back a premium offering. Oh, wow. I don't want to know what that is. Does anyone want to know? The Shogun has adopted the Fuso Advanced Telematic System. We're not going to talk about that. No, we don't need to do it. Don't need that. to talk about that. No, we know our way through Marillion. Right. <laughs> the, uh, the Super Scania has got top marks for fuel efficiency. That's not a surprise. We're not going to talk about that. No, no. They've been trying to lead the charge for years. Refrigerated solutions on offer from MaxiTrans. We're not talking about that either. No. Uh, and a waste management company benefits from a new Isuzu. That sounds like sponsored content to me, Bob. Very much so, very much so. It does, yeah. doesn't it sound like sponsored content? Yeah, probably got free number plates. <laughs> probably does. We're not going to talk about the bridge works on the Parks Bypass project. No, we won't need to be dealing with that. We'll leave that to the traffic down there. Leave that to the, the yeah. tra- tra- traffic down there. Mate, uh, some bloke's cop $41,500 fines because he crashed his chook truck. We're not going to talk about that either. No, no. And... Uh, we're well, not going to talk about their traffic changes ahead of some investment of $261 million on the Newell Highway. I think they'd need to spend more than that on the Newell to fix it, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, that's probably just what they're going to pay the consultants to work out <laughs> what they need to do next. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> All right, well, there are a few things we are going to talk about. Okay. Um, we, we want to get stuck into a few things. In no particular order of preference. I know you've got a sheet of paper in front of you there. In fact, you've got about 14 sheets of paper in front of you there. exactly right. 14 A4 pages of it. Of of, uh, things that the ATA have had to say about the closing the loopholes bill. So we are going to get into that. We're going to have a bit of a crack at that later on. Let's start. What do you reckon we start with this closing the loopholes inquiry? I understand that there have been several people that have made some submissions to that. So I suppose on the inquiry in general, we can talk about some of the things that have been said. I know that there's been some bits published widely, particularly the uh, sensational statements made by Rob Ireland and uh, his claims of being awake for 13 days straight yes. and uh, using his own body weight in drugs. Well, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about that from a number of points of view. First of all, I, I'm really pleased that Rob's still alive and well enough to be able to talk about it and remember what happened. But uh, I really think that it's uh, a sad indictment of um, where the industry debate's headed uh, that uh, both Rob and the uh, TWU or the United Industry Body, if you like, 
uh, portraying his behaviour and his uh, actions as what might have been the norm in years gone by. Well, I'm here to tell you that it wasn't the norm, it isn't the norm and it never should have been and what I'm absolutely astounded by is how he never got arrested and locked up and with the key thrown away because uh, he was an absolute mess going down the road by, by his own admission and, um, you know, I started driving in the early 60s and uh, we were all sort of told as young blokes better off to swallow one of these and swallow a gum tree, mm. which uh, there's nothing to be proud of. But uh, in the late 80s, especially when the bus crash happened at Grafton and then the other two buses, I uh, realised that things needed to change. It took me two years to work out how to make a mile without uh, using any chemical assistance and... Um, I've done better at making a mile ever since. I know blokes who never, ever used a, a stimulant. I know blokes that used a few too many. Uh, we now know Rob Island used far too many, like uh, how he ever needed 13 stubbies to, uh, to get himself down off the clouds. absolutely amazing. Because, 19, uh, I think. Most of us, yeah. uh, not 13 or 19, whatever it was, yep. but uh, most of us didn't even need 19 mouthfuls yep. uh, because we were we took enough to do the job and let ourselves wind down and tried to be sensible about it. When I uh, decided to uh, that it was time to give them away was when you could no longer get them with the label on the bottle or the uh, or the uh, drug itself. Um, when they started bringing out white powder and unmarked bags and clear liquid, what they called rocket fuel, yeah. And I thought, no, this is too dangerous. You know, that's my story. Robert's got his story, and uh, my story is not the industry norm, and neither's his. And to portray it as such. I think is just as dangerous as some of the uh, Channel 7 programs that caused us a lot of trouble in the 80s after the bus crashes and also uh, other accusations that have been made about good companies up in the far north and that sort of thing proven to be totally baseless and uh, done nothing but harm to individuals and the industry itself. Right, well, I don't, I, I don't think that you want to name the company that you're talking about up, the, up north, do you? Are you happy to do that? I am, yes, because I worked for them for 13 years and I have them, hold them in very high regard, as do anyone else that I know of, apart from the one bloke that went to the TV channel. All right, so we're talking about Blenners. We're talking about Les and Judy Blenner, and, and, and uh, they are industry leaders and um, uh, very uh, very responsible members of the industry. And if there's plenty of other companies around that could, could do well to follow their example. Well, they... To be fair, though, I think every it doesn't matter which company you look at it, whether it be Blenners, whether it be my company when I ran mine. Yeah, uh, we tried to do things. I remember I tried to do things with a pretty straight bat, but there were times when we coloured outside the lines. You had to. Yeah, yeah. And, well, uh, I suppose that's only fair. But uh, you look at Blenners today. You know, I still stay in touch with Blenners themselves, the yep. Blenner family themselves, and a couple of their managers. And I've got some good mates that drive there, and. Uh, They've got every every piece of uh, technology known to man that can make their industry safe, accountable, and, and traceable. Yeah. And uh, any any drivers that uh, that do try to colour outside the lines are uh, immediately dealt with. We so do they, have to they say they really can't try any harder than that. As far no, as I no, no, you're right. We do have to say that I suppose when you think about it now, trucking today is very very different to trucking as it was. Back then, in the well, it sure is. Yeah, know. I'm here to. I'm here to hear as proof of that. Yeah. yeah. So the stories I tell and yeah. people get sick of. Well, <laughs> you know, we we only got to look back at at some of the things that that uh, people have said about, uh, for example, in the in the two thousands and everything uh, when I was doing my little bit of campaigning back then, 
um, and you listen to things that were said uh, on 60 Minutes. Yes, yes, I remember And I the remember Harker's that. story and the yeah, whole, yeah, yeah, the whole, yeah. the whole way that was all going, yeah, yeah. and the way drivers were portrayed then, where a good way down the track from then. Yeah, some of the drivers yeah. bought that on themselves, and yeah. so did some of the employers because yeah. the employers. Uh, we're happy to let the drivers run. It was making them more money. Their trucks were getting utilised better. But, uh, of course, a couple of uh, famous instances that I won't deal with specifically, uh, when the drivers got caught out, they tried to uh, throw it back onto the boss's shoulders when yeah. uh, the, the, I think there was equal blame. Yeah. Well, and then I know for a fact, and I saw it happen, that there were some bosses that would throw someone a bottle of shakers on the way and go... Uh, yeah, they, go, they, yeah, well, they, they they were the Robert Islands of the of the employer group. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they, there's anyway. but none of these things were the industry norm. They no, they, no. they were all just different examples of what what happened. And um, you know, there was uh, there's always been good and bad in the industry, and 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 thankfully more good than bad. Yeah. Uh, look, there's no doubt in my mind that some blokes made decisions that were detrimental to them and. To others, yeah. But I, I, I sort of, I struggle with the idea that the government is to blame. I do too. Like I struggle with, as I've said previously, I struggle with the idea that the government's to blame for the deaths that have happened since RSRT, especially when eighty percent of them were nothing to do with, with with costs or industry conditions or anything other than the fact that the driver was unfortunate enough to be there in the first place. Yeah. But just to finish off on Robert Island, uh, I think it's a sad. Uh, commentary on on society and on people today that we can be we can be ex expected to believe that all these things were the fault of somebody or something else mm. robert island is to blame for his own actions he's accountable and, and thankfully he's uh, he had to leave the industry to, uh, to to get it out of his life which is fair enough that's um that's what he had to do but uh if you if you go through life saying to yourself if it is to be, it's up to me. Mm. That's where he was at and that's where he had to be at because uh, well, it's not the government's fault, it's not your fault, my fault or the industry's fault. He did have, to be fair, he did have some injuries which caused him to leave the industry really. Yeah, but uh, even so, that was all part of the journey. Yeah. Let's just get back to Rob now for a moment with the submission that he's made to uh, Transport for New South Wales, yeah. etc., saying they're not playing their part in helping truck truckies deal with the safety features. Yeah, that's that's a separate deal to the uh, yeah. closing the loophole stuff. Yeah, yeah. So let's get on with that one for a sec. We got a little bit diverted. According to some, it's a hard-hitting submission talking about how uh, he's aimed at the regulatory body, Transport for New South Wales, for many of the issues that occur on the, the road, stresses for stressed in his submission and his capacity as interstate driver rather than the president of the National Road Freighters Association. Why in the world would Rod want to make his submission as a, an individual rather than as the president of the Road Freighters? Well, I, I, I'd like to ask Rod that question next time I see him because yeah. I'm a bit interested by that. Um, obviously, he's been on his green reflectors and his lobbying about road conditions and parking bays and everything else goes back a lot further than his involvement with the NRFA. Yeah. But even so, um, I, I can't see anything wrong with him throwing the weight of the NRFA behind uh, his activities and his representations now. I, I'd see that that would be uh, helpful rather than not. But, mm. um, yeah, so we'll just have to wait for 
to catch up with Rod and let him answer the question. But um, the content of his of his uh, submission is pretty accurate. But uh, you know, I've got to tell you, Rod, it's nothing new that uh, governments and people in authority should uh, ignore truck drivers or any other person lobbying for that matter. Um, they uh, they're the people with the uh, with the position and the power, and uh, they're free to ignore us or listen to us, whatever they choose to do, yeah. and um, they uh, they live in an in, in a rarefied atmosphere of their ivory towers and beautiful offices, all taxpayer funded, and uh, the last thing they want to do is take notice of the actual taxpayers. So uh, it's a bit of real world stuff, mate. But good on you for speaking out because uh, they do do deserve to hear the truth. Right, let's wrap that one up. We'll put a draw a line under that, mate. Uh, the New South Wales government recently uh, put out a press release, and I tried to get uh, Minister Jenny Aitchison on the on the show last Wednesday night. Unfortunately, she was unwell. Yeah. She has committed to come on the show to have a talk about. This oh, that's good. She'll be able to explain part of that press release. That, yeah, uh, so the press it. release that we're talking about there is the changes to regulations within South uh, within South Australia. <laughs> try New she, South she, Wales. She, she, try New South Wales. She'd probably <laughs> like to have a bit of power in South Australia. But yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, she's involved in the transport ministry in New South Wales. They're now going to allow extra weight for electric vehicles due to their uh, increased weight with batteries and things like that. And I'd like to say that that's great, but I'm a little bit cynical. Like, how come is it now the case that all the formulas for the bridge stresses and all the axle limits and tyre limits and all that sort of thing, all the reasons we get thrown at us for excuses we can't carry a bit more freight, all of a sudden... Move to the side when we're talking about allowing some extra weight for electric vehicles. Is that just am I too cynical, Bob? Um, no, you're not too cynical, but uh, I think it all relates back to the fact that all of a sudden we've got these uh, uh, companies and organisations representing them coming along uh, that have, have have vested interests in this, and uh, I think the success of lobbyists depends on the size of their bank account. <laughs> You're nearly as cynical as me. Well, you know, like if the truth's cynical, well, I'm cynical. Just does it does my head in that we can get something like this across the line so so very well. Very quickly. Just 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 take it a little bit further than the uh, extra weight. What about the extra five centimeters and cabin width so we can have uh, these these new European trucks come here? Like I remember in the uh, um, the early eighties, I think it was Ford bought out a cab over. I think it was it was called a seven thousand. Yeah. Uh, Tom and Peter Lindsay were were ready to order twenty of them from the Ford uh, Motor Company, and um, they, Ford couldn't even get a permit to trial them on Australia's roads because they were t- two inches too wide. And I believe they tried in both Victoria and New South Wales, yeah. and possibly even Queensland. Uh, and uh, so that that model Ford never came to Australia. Yeah. And that's how come Lindsay's started buying cab over Kenworths. So, interesting bit of history. Yeah, so, yeah. so this is the thing that amazes me about you, Bob. I can sit here and I can look at you and I can see the wheels turning. <laughs> and uh, you know the history. You remember the history. Yeah, well, things stick in my mind, I suppose, and, Mike. And I think that sometimes because there isn't enough memory of what's gone before, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over because there are some people who don't know the history, so therefore they don't consider what has happened before 
yeah. and what they think might have been a good idea has already been done and yeah. shown to be not quite so smart. That's right. And well, then they go ahead and do it anyway and they oh, that's not smart, we'll, we'll, we'll reinvent the wheel. Whereas folks like yourself who can remember all this stuff, it's amazing to me when we've had conversations about uh, issues, uh, p- policy and... and um, Administration? Well, the, uh, the, the political policy and the yeah. political um, things that we yeah. did. Yeah. You were fairly politically active back in the day with the different organisations. Yes, I was Secretary of the ITA and yeah. I wrote those columns for Truck and Life for a yeah. long time. Yeah, so... You saw a lot of things that were, were tried and moves that were made. Yes. And some of those things still haven't been resolved. No, that's exactly right. Some of the, the more, you know, I, I, I'm renowned for saying the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, you know, like even the um, chain, closing the loopholes bill is in, in danger of, 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 of repeating a bit of history. But there is it is well known that history does repeat itself. That's why we, we've had more than one world war for a start. And Sometimes to, it doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. Yes, it sure does. Yes, <laughs> and sadly so. Yeah, you know, we we can't live in a perfect world because we're not perfect uh, beings. But um, even so, we could uh, deal with a few less mistakes and a, a bit less history repeating itself. Just a little quick one. We probably won't talk about too much, but uh, TMR in Queensland. Uh, out in force now, they're, in se- they're intercepting dangerous goods vehicles as part of Operation Cyclone. Operation Cyclone's been sort of set up around having a bit of a look at compliance with heavy vehicle national law uh, regulations and state-based legislations, the TMR said. Their inspectors are out in- intercepting these vehicles to make sure that the DG blokes are doing the right thing. Do you reckon DG blokes mostly do the right thing? I think we've got no choice but to. Pretty hard work. It's hard work and, uh, you know, most of the blokes I know doing doing DG are uh, very switched on and very professional. Mm. Um, one press release I saw from TMI was trying to pass it off as it being a bit of an educational exercise for their officers to learn more, but mm. uh, I'm not quite sure that I'd uh, wear that one. Right. Well, it sort, of, it sort of swings us into this uh, story about... Where was it? The uh, the fellas up in uh, Queensland asking for them to be a little bit uh, yes. more educational, a little bit less confrontational. Well, the, ba- the background of that's important because uh, Simon Tuxworth from Tuxworth and Woods, who I've never met, and Dennis Dent from Mareeba, who I have met uh, back in the past, um, spoke about Scalies who regularly set up a heavy vehicle inspection station at Mount Carbine. Yep. Now, a lot of people wouldn't even know where Mount Carbine is, but it's... Uh, on the way to Cape York and Weeper and all those places. And um, Dennis and his trucks and Tuxworth and Woods, they, they uh, operate up into all that area, Cooktown, Weeper, Normanton, and uh, look after all of that Gulf country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the roads are shocking. Um, there's two types of roads up there, rather good and extremely bad. <laughs> and... Uh, they say that Scalies have been infringing their drivers for very minor breaches such as broken taillight or essential is not working when they're on their way back from the Gulf Country. Yeah. Uh, you know, when... Uh, and and they're saying that 
on the return journey, trucks can sustain such damage along the notorious Peninsula Development Road. Yeah. And of course, you've got to remember there's not much backloading out of up there. All they're bringing back is empty pallets and containers and yeah. maybe the odd smashed-up vehicle. So uh, the roads are going to do a lot more damage when, you, when you're not, not up on your weights. Yeah. And uh, these, uh, these inspectors, overzealous as the, I would suggest they are, uh, are uh, impringing them for minor stuff that was going to get fixed as soon as the trucks got back to Mareeba or Cairns or yeah. wherever anyway. And um, Simon and Dennis are suggesting that uh, um, instead of finding the drivers for these things, they should be spending money to fix the roads and showing a little bit of understanding and, and being a little bit uh, giving a little bit of leeway. And I, I couldn't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. Like... Um, You've only got to look at uh, the stories about Toots when she was in a prime and some of that country hasn't improved much since then. No, it hasn't. And the, the thing of it is, too, I think that uh, there's a difference between the hazard of one broken tail light when you've got half a dozen across the back of your trailer. Yeah, well, how many thousands of people have died because a reflector fell off the side of a trailer on a corrugated road? No, I wouldn't say that that's happened. No, but, so it's a, it is a little bit pointed. Just on the Yam Highway last night, I saw several cars towing big trailers with shitloads of furniture in them yeah. and not a tail light amongst them. Some of them probably so, only had one headlight too. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. I no, just no. find it wildly amusing that we spend our time infringing people. I mean, the roads, the roads aren't truck-worthy. No, no, they're not. No, exactly. We've yeah, been held yeah. to one standard and, and they're holding, holding themselves to an entirely different standard. They are. Why yeah. don't we start issuing infringement notices for potholes? I wonder how, I wonder how Rod would go for that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we could get him a book printed. <laughs> maybe we could get him a book printed. We could just start writing infringement notices to councils for potholes and see how we go. What yeah, that's that's for sure, yeah. No, that, we, we need to reverse the flow here. Uh, reverse the flow, I reckon we should <laughs> But anyway, good on Simon and Dennis for speaking out. They're, they're, they're very they're good blokes. They're responsible operators and they're a credit to themselves and, and they're valuable members of our industry. So we should support them. We should indeed. All right, we'll have a quick break and we'll hear from one of the sponsors and then we're going to get into this 14 pages of ATA stuff. There's nothing more devastating for a truck operator than to be involved in a serious road incident. We've all seen the impact of heavy vehicle accidents and at these times, when people are most vulnerable, it's critical that they have immediate support from a strong, stable, reliable and experienced organisation. NTI is Australia's number one truck insurer, the specialist you can count on to protect your transport and logistics assets, with the know-how to take control of the situation and the capability to reduce lost income by getting trucks back on the road again as soon as possible. Specialist products, experienced people, accredited repair and recovery networks and industry advocacy is what we do. It's our specialty and we've been doing it for more than 45 years. For more information, visit the website at nti.com.au or go to the NTI Facebook page. All right then, well welcome back. We're uh, going to have a bit of a chat about this ATA stuff now. Bob's been shuffling away at the papers madly here. You might hear him shuffling away at the background. He, he's a bit old school. He wouldn't go for the electric screen. He wanted it printed out. So, Bob, I'm going to let you lead the charge on this. You're, you've got a few concerns about the ATA submission. 
uh, in as much as you think that they've made it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, yes. Well, I'm not sure that they're entirely to blame. I think what they've been uh, they've been roped into making it a lot more complicated by the actual um, closing the loopholes legislation itself, the 278 pages of the Act and the 521 pages of the uh, uh, explanatory memorandum, they call it, the, the EM. Um, now, when you go through this ATA submission, the first thing that struck me was if we go back there a couple of months, three months ago when I started talking about my top-down idea yeah. and then we got the we saw the original submission from the ATA, which was was sort of, to me, uh, was, was, and you and I both agreed it was clever and achievable and, yeah, and yeah. it fitted in with our... Uh, top-down ideas, um, the ATA's come a long way from there, but I don't think they're entirely to blame because I think uh, they've had to respond to what's been put in front of them by the government and by the Senate committee. And um, when you're sitting there with uh, nearly 800 pages of gobbledygook in front of you, uh, it takes a fair bit of dealing with. And going through the ATA submission, you can see that they've been referring to both the explanatory memorandum and the sections of the Act itself. And uh, so it's the submission's a very complicated piece of work, um, not entirely uh, um, out of order or anything like that. Uh, I can see why they've sort of uh, had to do what they've done. Mm -hmm. But um, being a bit of a... Rebel like I have been in the past, and um, getting on a bit. I'm just wondering if uh, maybe there'll come an occasion shortly in the near future where maybe the ATA and any other body, because I believe Nat Rhodes had some misgivings about one certain act of yeah, it. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, some industry people might decide that uh, a united front's not the answer, and uh, should we walk away from this and go and talk to the independents and do it another way, like? I suggested in something to talk about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, look, I struggle with that. <clears throat> I struggle with that in a lot of ways. Um, first is we've never before seen everyone in the industry sitting on the same side of the fence. Uh, we did We did for five minutes after road tax was dropped in 1979. Yeah, yeah, we did. But right now you've, you've got all the industry groups that are sort of saying that this closing the loopholes bill is something that needs to happen. I don't like the idea of a heap of amendments to the transport part of it. Uh, it makes it far more complicated than it needs to be. Well, I think that's a, the problem with the Act itself, that it's far more complicated than it needs to be and that's where it comes from. Yeah. We're not... There's this fundamental idea that there's trying to be a reproduction of a road safety remuneration tribunal, that this is just RSRT Mark II. I maintain, uh, I never ac actually had a problem with uh, the road safety remuneration tribunal. The actual tribunal itself was something that I didn't have a problem with. Fair enough, yeah. I know others who feel that way. The order was what I had the problem with yeah. and the yeah. way it was interpreted. And the fact that there was never an explanation of the fact that these orders could be challenged. Yeah. So at least this time, they're saying quite openly that you know if this Fair Work Commission thing makes a submission and says that this is an order that we'd like to make or a regulation that we'd like to make or whatever they want to call it, and then it won't take effect for two years and there'll be people able to comment about it before it starts yeah. to happen. 
and give people time to prepare for it. Now, unlike instances where we just knocked off the um, excise on fuel overnight and didn't give anyone a chance to to uh, make any adjustments to their business plan or anything like that and then bring it back when the whinging got loud enough uh, and still cost everyone five cents a litre. That's beside, that's another issue altogether. That's not the sort of environment we're going to be playing in with this Fair Work Commission thing. So it's unlike the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal as far as that. The ATA has said on the one hand here uh, in this 14 pages that you've got there in front of you that the Fair Work Commission shouldn't be allowed to set rates. And then they go on to make a whole series of arguments about if they do set rates and this is the way to do it. Yeah, well, what I don't understand. What they've said is that they've, they've put... Um, Recommend, they've actually put 10 recommendations, but the, the first one says that they should pass the, the uh, Fair Work Legislation Amendment uh, subject to other recommendations in this being the ATA submission. They then make two recommendations, 2A and 2B, which uh, um, uh, mention about the Commission not being able to set rates. Mm. But then in recommendation 2C, and this is where... I suppose I'm easily confused. If ATA recommendations 2A and 2 or 2B are not not adopted, the Fair Work Commission should, in the alternative, be able to set minimum freight rates through the contractual chain. Yeah. Now, where does that get us? Uh, Back to square one. And I didn't support the RSRT or the orders because, one, they weren't bipartisan. Yeah. And, uh, two, I thought they should be. Yeah. And... Just like this closing the loopholes, Bill, I've been saying all along that the two things missing are transparency yeah. because we don't know what meetings or we, we haven't seen any minutes or what minutes meetings led up to this uh, expanded submission from the ATA. It's expanded and much more complicated than the original submission uh, and anything more complicated is harder to live with. As far as having two years' notice for any changes... Uh, I didn't get two years' notice the last time I blew up an engine. <laughs> so, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that either, Ma- Mike. Yeah, well, the, we, we don't live in an ideal world. We don't, we don't. And unfortunately, you know, we, we have the thing like, things like this closing the loopholes, uh, Bill, simply because uh, there are, as we both know, quite a few rogues in the game who are more than happy to... Yeah. Skim a bit off the top and pay a back hand here. I and think there's rogues in every game that I know of. I think there are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I have said in the past, there's a lot of sharks out there. Some of them just don't bite you as bad as others. <laughs> <laughs> some of them swim in the water and some of them swim on the water. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> you know, we look at we look at the situation where you said before we've had the conversation about the uh, tin shed and telephone operators. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the load boards that we now deal with. And well, we're just a digitalised version of, of, of the tin shed and telephone. Cheaper to run than a tin shed and telephone. Oh, yeah, do it from your lounge room. The problem that we have with all this stuff is that the regulation uh, doesn't keep up with the advances that are made. Yeah. And then the next problem that we've got is the enforcement of the regulation is very haphazard. So I don't think we can look forward to any changes. And, and people talk about conspiracies and all that sort of thing. When it comes down to conspiracy or cock-up, 
I think I'll take cock up just about every well, time. Well, I, I think I think the first example of a major cock up is is over regulation of anything, especially yeah. our industry. Yeah. And uh, you know, you you look at this. Uh, I can, you know, I'd I'd love to hear uh, hear from uh, Matt Munro about this submission and how it's become so complicated from their original submission. Well, but uh, obviously, they've been roped into it by the by the complexities of the legislation itself, and. Um, You've got to ask, is, uh, why does it have to be so complex? The answer is that it's an omnibus bill and uh, instead of us going back to what we've said before, instead of us having targeted legislation for our industry that's simple to use, simple to understand and simple to implement, we've got something that could end up making a lot of barristers and a lot of solicitors and a lot of consultants very wealthy before we see one piece of justice out of any of it. I reckon you and I are in the wrong game, mate. I reckon we should become transport consultants. My oath, I'll put my rates up straight away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have spoken with Matt Munro. In fact, we were on the phone only uh, last week. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think he has a lot to offer and I'd like to know his answers to these well, questions I, I today. Well, I think he's got a lot to offer as well and I, I, I don't think it's out of line for me to say that Matt said to me that the ATA want to be on the right side of history when it comes down to all this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I applaud that position. I applaud that position and that objective for sure. Yeah, it's a, so, it's a good ambition to have. So I think that, as we've always said, there are that many varying and competing interests in the industry. Yes. It's going to be very, very, very difficult to keep any one particular group happy. Uh, in in every respect, yeah. but that's the nature of compromise. I think we well, it is. Yeah. We need to sort of work on the things that we can work on together. Yeah. We agree on, and uh, walk our own paths on the things we don't agree on. That's not something I've never said before. No, uh, and that's the reason, certainly behind. I know the memorandum of understanding between the TWU and the National Road Freighters Association, simply because they decided that they wanted to walk down the same road on the things that they agreed on. And that's one of the reasons why they were part of the negotiations, because they were dealing with what they agreed with. Yeah. There are so many things that you can disagree with both organisations if you choose to. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. So for me, it's a smarter move, particularly for the ATA and for Nat Road and ARTIO and all of these people, NRFA, TWU, to get together and have one solid push towards what they want. Well, that, that's not exactly what's happening here, though, because this ATA submission is ATA-specific. This is their, that's their, their, that's their, 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 their contribution to it all. I agree. But then again, why is, there not a, why is there not a substantive position statement from every other road transport association? Well, I, 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 uh, I'd take that as the, the fact that they're probably in full agreement with it all and don't have any objections or any... any uh, um, recommendations or, or uh, adjustments to to suggest. Now you're saying that you you believe that people like the TWU agree with what the ATA are saying. No, I'm saying that they believe they they agree with the with what the government's saying in the legislation. Yeah, well, that's not an unreasonable statement to make. Well, you know, um, I, I, if you don't hear anything to the contrary, I think that's the only 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 belief you can have. So. Um, I applaud the ATA doing what they've done, and I understand that they've had to work within the legislation and the and the uh, explanatory memorandum themselves. Yeah. But uh, it's a very very complicated um, situation, and uh, not up to me to 
uh, advise um, Matt Munro or the ATA or David Smith or anyone else, but uh, if they're looking to be on the right side of history, uh, I can see that there's going to be a conflict in all of this for them that they'll need to sort out because I think this is just, uh, you know, I, I don't for one minute believe, as I've said a hundred times, that the industry's in crisis and we've seen plenty of evidence of that even at, at the lights on the hill this week. Um, good luck to all the people that supported that. Um, I think that uh, we're probably developing a crisis if we go ahead with all this complicated stuff and leave the issues that need dealing with on the back burner while all these committees and, uh, as I said, solicitors and consultants yeah. and barristers get involved in it all because uh, it just looks to me like a, 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 a major political quagmire coming up, but legal, legal quagmire. Mm. Well, there's no doubt, I mean, the, the, the safe, sustainable transport industry idea is, a, is a, not a bad idea. Oh, no, it's an ideal, yes. And uh, we've been working towards that now for several years since yeah. uh, Glenn Stirl started his inquiry. Yeah. There's been more than enough submissions made. Heaps. We've got, we've got more than enough, even back as far as Quinlan. We know what's going on. We know what's wrong. Um, old mate Isles from Monash University's done his research. We've got uh, every man and his dog. Well, mate. we had and Professor Kim Hassel doing the same at Armidale University yeah. in the 80s, so there's a bit of history repeating itself. Yeah. So, Just one example. So we, we, we know what the problems are. We've asked the questions. We yes. know what the problems are. And in our heart of hearts, we know what the answers to the problems are. We, we do. Right. The problem with it is, is that no one has the the intestinal fortitude to do it all, and to and to make the decisions that need to be made to make things as right as they can be. One of the things that doesn't need to happen is the government or anybody setting rates. Exactly. That's one of the things well, that does a, not a, need a, to happen. You know, has anyone been able to define to, to you, Mike, both privately or publicly, what? constitutes a safe rate? No. I've never in, 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 we're in the, about, but we don't know. In the ATA submission, um, they, they, there's one little section here where they talk about um, uh, recovering costs. Yep. And uh, they, they set out examples of what costs could be uh, recovered as a separate, like, you know, as a separate item to your, to your main, main rate. Yeah. Well, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to have a viable, uh, um, productive, realistic business model for road transport, you're going to have to. You, you, the only way you can do that is to have have it so that all the costs are recoverable. Yeah. That 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 people are properly remunerated for the time they spend, whether behind the wheel or behind the desk or talking to politicians. Yeah. Uh, and that. Um, there's there's a profit margin there for everyone too, yeah. like just just take for example, uh, I talked last week about the uh, B triples now being legal between Sydney and Brisbane. Yeah. Now you look at the amount of establishment costs and 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 um, add-on costs that that Easters would have incurred yeah. for that to happen. Now them and the customers benefit obviously, uh, but someone. You know, what's to stop someone coming along, whether they're intending to stay in business or go broke shortly, yeah. undercutting Easter's on that job 
and, and taking away Easter's opportunity to amortise those costs back through their earnings. Well, there's nothing and this, to stop you. That's right. And that's, that's one of the problems. That's one of the problems. In, as I've said before, and, and I've got a couple of very close friends who hate me saying it, mm-hmm. in a democracy you're just as free to be successful as you are to go broke or the other way around. Yeah. Um, and um, we can't legislate against that, but we can make it a fairer, a safer place for all, but we're not going to do it with nearly 800 pages of, of bureaucratic gobbledygook that you can look to uh, even just reading between the lines in the ATA submission and saying, well, this is not just about road transport. This is about ideology gone wrong. Mm. Uh, we don't need to be part of an omnibus bill or omnibus legislation. We need to have targeted legislation that's good for this industry, that's going to get results and is going to uh, not complicate things. We're already over-regulated in the eyes of many and I, I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, we need to settle down a bit and take a close, hard look at what's going on here, and, and be honest with ourselves. Yeah. And uh, if the ATA and you know, and I'll say it again, and uh, I can be howled down if they like. If the ATA want to be on the right sort of side of history, and I believe they're sincere in that uh, in that uh, ambition, um, I really think that uh, this is going to be a conflict for them. Mm. All right, mate. Well, that's it. We've done it to death. We've had a bit of a chat, and we've had a bit of a say. Good to have you in the cage with me, mate. Thanks, mate. I hope, I hope the cage can cope. <laughs> we'll be right. And it's time for us to head off for lunch. What a show. What a show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Kermie here from Trucking with Kermie. I listen to On the Road podcast every week. And when that's done, you might like to pop over to Trucking with Kermie on Facebook for my take on trucking and the people who make the industry what it is. Catch you over there. And in the meantime, take care of you. G'day, it's Andy here. And this week, I'm straying away from our usual music interview style to bring you something a bit different. As all our industrious and talented Aussie music artists are currently either on tour or away performing at the Denny Ute Muster in Deniloquin, now it's not easy to say, getting hold of one of them in the flesh has been an almost impossible task. So I decided that whilst keeping with my aim to bring you the best of Australian music talent, I might just introduce you to a couple of bands from the past, bands that are no longer together, but nonetheless bands that played an important role in the creation of our diverse and thriving music industry in this country. Now, I expect very few, if any of you, will have ever heard of these outfits, and they both certainly fall into very different genres than you're used to hearing on this show. But I believe that there's a broad range of musical tastes out there amongst our regular listeners, and to that end, I'm bringing you some different music to listen to this week. First up is a band that definitely falls squarely into the rock category, driving guitars, solid drums and bass and brilliant pure rock vocals. A little later I'll introduce you to another band that was arguably Australia's very first and, dare I say it, best symphonic progressive rock band. So first up, our out-and-out rockers. Here's a little sample, just so you can get an idea of where I'm coming from when I classify these guys as a genuine rock band. The band was called Avion, and they hit the scene hard in the early 80s with a truly polished international rock sound. Have a listen.
Now, that was an excerpt from an Avion song that tore Molly Meldrum and Countdown apart way back when. I have a confession, the band's leader was a guy I knew back in the 70s who could seriously play guitar and had a voice I would kill for. His name is Randall Waller, and as an aside, he played at my first wedding in 1978. We both loved guitars, swapped a couple of amps with each other, and talked about future stardom. That's where the similarities ended. He went on to achieve massive fame and fortune in the music industry around the world. I was left to play in dingy bars and dives, but I digress. In 1981, Randall joined forces with his younger brothers John on drums and Kendall on bass, along with Evan Murray on keyboards and Martin Toole on second guitar. Originally called Lionheart, they changed their name to Avion. The band released just two albums, the self-titled Avion album in 1983 and White Noise sometime later in 1987. Despite having a really strong cult following due to, as Australian rock music historian Ian McFarlane called it, their brand of melodic American-influenced adult-oriented rock, they decided to shut the band down in late 1987 when keyboardist Evan Murray was tragically killed in a car accident. That was the end of an albeit short road for Avion, but such was not the case for Randall himself. While I was playing away in a damp corner in some dive somewhere or another, Randall went on to perform on the world stage, touring and playing with the likes of Shania Twain, Keith Urban, Elton John, Billy Thorpe, Dragon, Rose Tattoo and even the Backstreet Boys. Now that last one surprised me to be honest. Additionally, his amazing voice was heard on a multitude of ads around the world, including one for Panasonic here in Australia, that the first time I heard it I thought, damn, that's Randall, I'd know that voice anywhere. He became a sought-after recording engineer and producer in the UK and the US, and his career, just as they say, went off in a big way. I'm not jealous, really I'm not, kudos to the dude, while I was sitting around hoping to be discovered for the musical genius I'm clearly not, he was out there making it happen. These days he's finally back home in Australia. You can take the boy out of Sydney, but you can't take the Sydney out of the boy. CEO and producer of his own entertainment business and popping up from time to time at impromptu gigs around town, much to the joy of his legion of long-time fans, of which I must unashamedly call myself one. It was a shame to see a super-talented band like Avion come and go over such a relatively brief stay at the forefront of the Aussie rock scene. But Randall's a rock dog at heart who still believes there's a place in this country for pure, unadulterated, good old-fashioned power rock and roll, and I've got to agree with him. If you want to know more about the band, there's plenty of good stuff online. Just Google the name and rock on. In the meantime, here's another of Avion's killer rock tunes called Never Let Me Go.
Now for something completely different. For the second part of my little Aussie rock time travel piece this week, let me introduce you to a band called Sebastian Hardy. As I mentioned before, they were the undisputed kings that forged the way in Australia for the beautiful melodic rock sounds that were later sadly labelled unceremoniously as prog rock, or to give it the full title, progressive symphonic rock music. I think that sounds so much nicer. If you've ever spaced yourself out with headphones on listening to symphonic rock bands like Yes, Focus, Early Moody Blues, even some of Pink Floyd's amazing ethereal tunes, you'll get what I'm talking about. Sebastian Hardy were originally the late great John English on vocals, Mario Millo on guitar and vocals, Toivo Pilt on keyboards, Peter Plavsik on bass and his brother Alex Plavsik on drums. And each of these guys individually were amongst the finest technically gifted musicians this country's ever produced, in my opinion. I know it won't be everyone's cup of tea or can of beer, so I won't dwell on it for too long, but here's a quick teaser to give you the feel of what these guys were all about. This is an excerpt from a track titled Everything Is Real. Sebastian Hardy formed in 1967, originally under the name of the Sebastian Hardy Blues Band, but as they developed their more progressive style, they dropped the Blues Band part of the name and later went on to adopt a new name as Windchase, which was taken from the title of their second album in 1976. It was, however, their first album called Four Moments that defined their unique sound and their huge cult following. Although they officially disbanded in 1977, they have reformed a few times over the years for live shows and a new recording in 2011, featuring all the original members of the band. All up in total, seven albums were released, including a live in LA recording, as well as their last album from 2011 titled Blueprint. It saddens me that a band of this sheer musical quality that was so far ahead of its time didn't stay with us for a lot longer. It would have been interesting to see how their music developed across the years. Anyway, to finish up, here's a part of a track called Openings. I won't play the whole thing, it went on for about 13 minutes, but once more, enjoy some of the sheer genius that was Sebastian Hardy, a.k.a. Windchase.
On the Road is proudly brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer, and Queensland Rail, committed to improving safety through engineering, innovation and education. Play nice with each other and most of all, stay safe out there. Bye for now. Bye-bye. The team here at On the Road believe in the right to free speech and whilst we might not always be in agreement with the views of our guests and contributors, we support their right to hold and express those opinions. Mm-hmm.